0: Welcome to the Fair Talks podcast, where we educate everyday people for extraordinary change. I'm your host, Alicia Chan, Executive Director of Fair Trade LA, a community of business members, nonprofits, and fair trade enthusiasts driving proactive, sustainable solutions for a fairer world. I'm also a social entrepreneur with a passion for ending poverty and creating dignified jobs. Together, we'll explore how Fairtrade changes lives and communities and what we can do to address some of the world's biggest problems right in our own homes. Let's dive in. Fair Talks is brought to you by Fairtrade USA, the organization that brings you the Fairtrade certified label. Fairtrade USA is committed to building an innovative model of responsible business, conscious consumerism, and shared value to eliminate poverty and enable sustainable development for farmers, workers, their families, and communities around the world. Rwanda is a country that has a special place in my heart. Growing up, I learned about the 1994 genocide of Rwanda where nearly 1 million people were killed in just 100 days. Yet fast forward to 2010... After the devastating 7.0 magnitude earthquake in Haiti that killed over 300,000 people and displaced 1.3 million in a matter of seconds, the country of Rwanda was seen as a model of successful recovery for Haiti to follow. That was only 16 years since the genocide. Rwanda is a hilly and fertile African country with a population of over 13 million people. Since 2005, Rwanda has made considerable progress in reducing poverty. Poverty fell from 68.3% in 2005 to 56.5% in 2016. In 2018, the UN Environment Program Head referred to Kigali, the capital city of Rwanda, as the cleanest city on the planet, both in terms of lack of street rubbish and green initiatives. Kigali has become a world icon in urban transformation. In 2008, as a first step, the city banned single use plastic bags. Plastic packaging materials was also prohibited. Kigalians were asked to switch to bags made of degradable materials such as paper, linen, banana leaves, and papyrus. Aesthetically designed waste bins are carefully placed in public places as well. I can't wait to see that in Haiti. The city has become a highly sought-after destination for businesses, conferences, and international tourism, leading to the city and the country's rapid economic development. Kigali is also currently refashioning itself as a tech hub in Africa. There is, of course, still much work to be done for the people of Rwanda. In today's conversation, we will dive into healing from trauma and how the discovery of Rwanda's premium grade tea is making an economic impact for rural communities. I recently discovered this awesome company called Cirilla, a clean non-alcoholic beverage company made with organic fair trade Rwandan tea leaves. The founder was experimenting with her loose leaf at home when she had the idea to carbonate the cold brew. Now they have created a quality product for the beverage industry. Stick around to the end for an exclusive discount to shop these delicious beverages from Rwanda. Today, we have with us Sarah Delaney, an award-winning beverage creator, TEDx speaker, and the founding CEO of Cirilla, a social enterprise with two Fairtrade-certified product lines, including a sparkling non-alcoholic beverage and loose-leaf tea. She has been partnering with the people of Rwanda since 2007, sourcing premium grade tea from farmer-owned cooperatives and now growing their own botanicals on the Yubuzima Healing Garden Farm using regenerative agricultural methods. Sarah has been leading curated crop to cup tours to East Africa since 2012, and before launching Sorilla founded a nonprofit that serves women with a history of trauma called Africa Healing Exchange. Sarah was the first national coordinator for Fairtrade Towns and helped to launch the fair Trade University program back in 2007. She currently
1: lives in Asheville, North Carolina with her family. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for jumping on and having this conversation with me. Hi, Alicia. How are you? Good. Well, first of all, I feel like there's so much we could dive into, but I found out that you uh, worked with Fair Trade Campaigns and you were their first national coordinator for Fair Trade Towns. And I know that one, October is Fair Trade Month, and then two, we have a lot of people that's listening that's probably part of a campaign, their local campaign. So I want to learn more about your experience there.
2: Yeah, I'm excited for Fair Trade Month and it's really incredible to be doing what I'm doing today, having started out on that Mm -hmm. campaign side and as an activist and like really grassroots because when we got started with Fair Trade Towns, it was it was full force in the UK. Like they had a very Mm -hmm. strong campaign and then Media Pennsylvania had a lot going on. I was up in Brattleboro, Vermont, and Brattleboro is the second fair trade town in the Mm. U.S. So it was, you know, amazing to be able to do my graduate practicum for a fair trade clothing company called Cusiqui up in Brattleboro, Vermont. This was in like 2007, I believe. So, (laughs) And and that really got me like so passionate about fair trade and just asking a lot of questions about how things are produced and where they produce and who is producing, like whose hands are behind all the products that we buy. And so many of us take for granted yeah. every day. We just have such easy access to so many options. So I'm excited that you've got this podcast and this opportunity to connect with so many listeners. So thanks for doing what you're doing, not only in LA with Fair Trade Campaign in LA, but you know, in general, I mean, this is an opportunity to reach people around the world. So thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's so true. I wanted this to inspire people with their work, whether they are part of a local campaign or doing something that you did, which is to start a new company, (laughs) fair trade company. So now bring us to the beginning. Why Rwanda? How did you find yourself there?
2: So back to 2007, I was building that campaign in Vermont. Mm-hmm. And then started working as the national coordinator for Fair Trade Towns USA. Or it was it's now Fair Trade USA, right? Mm-hmm. But at the time we were also collaborating with Oxfam America, with mm-hmm. Fair Trade Resource Network, Fair Trade Federation. Those are great organizations as well. And it was just an amazing collective of like really passionate, devoted people. And during that time, I moved down to Asheville, North Carolina. Brought that job with me. Was working remotely and started corresponding with this fair trade coffee farmer in Rwanda by email. Mm. And his cooperative is called Kupac C O O P I C. His name is Emmanuel. Mr. Emmanuel actually, I think, was the first certified organic coffee farmer as well in in Rwanda. And so I reached out because I was really interested in the work they were doing and. And so it was just another um, seed that was planted for me to one day go to Rwanda.
1: After the 2010 earthquake that hit Haiti, which obviously made international news, it was just such a devastating earthquake. And I remember watching CNN and one of the first interviews they had, the people that they brought on in response to this was Paul Farmer, who started a great hospital in Haiti. Donna Karen, the founder of DKNY, who works with artisans in Haiti. And then the last but not least, the president of Rwanda, because they were saying that Rwanda is considered Mm. a successful model for recovery since the genocide and that Haiti needs to learn from them. So I've always wanted to go to Rwanda for myself to see how they've rebuilt the infrastructure and just put things in place for recovery. So I'm so curious, with your time spent there, what are some things in infrastructure or some of the solutions you've seen that have helped Rwanda become successful today? And even mm-hmm. like your personal That's journey. Really interesting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I do see it as a symbol of, it's definitely a model of recovery and resilience mm-hmm. and a symbol of strength and hope. And it is interesting the when you look at Haiti, which I'm not as familiar as compared to Rwanda and I'm familiar with Paul Farmer's work as well. And I actually met him in Rwanda. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the godfather of, um, the, the children of my employer. Mm-hmm. So he would come into wow. the restaurant at times. Yeah. But he went back and forth. Um, so yeah, it's re- it really is interesting. I think also, to be clear, you know, it's not a perfect, um, yeah. it's not a perfect model, right? I, I, I felt like the longer I lived there, the more, you know, it, it, it looks very beautiful and clean and organized on the surface, but mm. you scratch the surface and there's just a lot of unhealed trauma. Hopefully mm. that's changing. But there's so many emotional wounds there that haven't been healed. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of a, an article in the New York Times a bunch of years ago called, Have They Healed Yet? And it was mm-hmm. looking at many of the Rwandan genocide survivors. And you know, if, if we have listeners who know anything about trauma, it knows no time. So it doesn't matter how many years have passed. If it hasn't been healed, it's like it was yesterday or it's like it's still happening in our bodies So, I mean, there is the physical infrastructure change, but then there's also like what's happening underneath the surface and the emotional and the mental health that hopefully is being addressed now. I know right after the genocide happened, there were only four, as far as I could tell, there were four Rwandan psychologists in the whole country. Wow. So over time, there've been lots of groups that are now working to help with that lasting, you know, ramifications of PTSD and the effect Mm. on the the current generation, because it is, you know, a generational Mm. thing that can be passed down. You know, we we lived in Kigali, which is the capital city.
3: Mm.
2: And it's a very busy urban environment. There's grocery stores, I was managing a restaurant, we had great food every day. It's Mm. very fertile soil, there's lots of lots of things growing most mm. people are farming or you know have gardens at their house so we always had like good produce and grass-fed pasture-raised eggs and chicken and yeah. very little meat i mean we just ate very like wholesome and i don't drink alcohol i started like exploring the tea that was there mm. i had never been exposed to african teas and I'm a coffee lover as well. So we would wake up to like the best Rwandan mm. coffee ever. And I'm so excited when I see Rwanda on the label now of any yeah. product here, because back then you didn't yeah. see it ever mentioned yeah. on a package. Yeah. So. Um, and oftentimes I mean- those
1: local produce and foods are the healthiest the best, yeah, the most delicious. Oh, yeah.
2: The yeah. bananas, like mm. you never, I never have bananas like that in the grocery mm. stores in the US. Like those yeah. small ones, they're so yeah. sweet. It's like candy.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and yes. just the, you know, the, the meals, even the simple like rice and bean meals are just so mm-hmm. delicious. Yes. But yeah, and then I mean, seems to be a very good healthcare system, good mm. education system. At the time I was there, the country was transitioning from French to English as the, I guess, approved language. Mm. So that was very um, happened very quickly, and a lot of folks weren't prepared. Yeah. Didn't have you know the skills to continue teaching. Some children yeah. were not able to continue school. So I saw that was like a big challenge educationally, and. Yeah. I mean, we were working for someone who was also directing the Millennial Village Project. And I think that's how they were connected to Paul Farmer, Mm. um, which was a really interesting and probably famous model, really developing these villages to be Mm. self-sufficient and to help people move out of poverty and to access Mm. good health care and good nutrition
3: Mm. and
2: school for their children every day. So yeah you know, I had a great time living there. I had a great quality of life. Mm. There were lots of expats like there to stay, you know, they Mm. went for a little while and they didn't want to leave. It kind of, it gets under your skin and you just don't want to go. I don't blame them. Yeah. It's very easy to love. Very easy to love Rwanda. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So this whole journey inspired you to start a nonprofit. So tell us about that. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, because in that time that I was living and working there, we were um, managing this business that employed a number of genocide survivors. And many of them had been young children in 1994 when the war happened. Mm. And I was seeing firsthand the lasting implications of that and lots of like physical and mental manifestations of untreated, unhealed trauma Mm. or untreated post-traumatic stress disorder. Not Mm. that I'm a doctor, no diagnosis here, but it just, people would come to me and ask me like, if we could do anything to Mm. help with that. They didn't even know maybe what services could exist for that. And going to like a therapist was not Socially something that people did. I think they right. existed, but probably more for foreigners. like yeah. it wasn't people were expected to go to the church for help, mm-hmm. right? if they needed mm-hmm. it. So before I left, when my contract was up, I asked some of my Rwandan friends if there's any because I didn't want to leave. I wanted to stay connected as well. Yeah. and i I saw so many nonprofit organizations that had a presence in Kigali, but they weren't really going far out of the city center. Mm -hmm. And when I started exploring the rest of the country, it was like another world. There were so many needs. Mm -hmm. And so I I could see that there was like a huge gap there. There were a lot of needs not being met. And I I don't want to say, I'm I'm sure like the government is doing everything they can. It's just, it's a lot of people to help. There's a lot of unemployment and they had so much to heal from and so much Mm -hmm. to recover from. I mean, everything was decimated, you know, human lives, the, the land, the farms, the animal population, businesses just completely Mm. decimated. Yeah. Um, So what people told me was needed most was trauma healing support and uh, jobs. So when I got back to the States, um, stayed connected, and then went back as soon as I could to do a listening tour. So we spent a few weeks there traveling around, visiting different groups, mainly talking with women and just listening to what their needs were and how we could maybe be of service, but not to bring a Western approach to actually just help them access their own inner resources to access training, education, or skills that they might need to become leaders In their own communities to really develop programs that could help build resilience Mm -hmm. and that's what we came to after like a number of a number of meetings a number of trips was to stop talking about the trauma Mm -hmm. and to talk about the resilience to focus Mm -hmm. on the strengths Rather than, you know, even that word trauma just becomes so heavy Mm -hmm. and it was being used so much. Mm -hmm. People didn't want to talk about it. They wanted to move forward. Mm -hmm. So that's how um, I developed Africa Healing Exchange as a 501c3 in partnership with people in Rwanda. We developed um, this resiliency model and it was a training of trainers so we could bring it Mm -hmm. to counselors and social workers who lived in their community, and then Mm. could go on and pass the skills to their friends and neighbors Mm. to really expand these very simple, very accessible, no technology or high school education needed tools.
1: Mm. Wow, that you responded to a huge need there. So what are the different Mm. resources available in Rwanda? And why did you end up choosing tea? And tell Mm. us about Uh, starting with that with Cirilla your brand
2: (laughs) yes so I Africa Healing Exchange by the way the website's africahealingexchange.org you can still read about our work there and most of our work is in Rwanda we have done some trainings in the U.S. as well but we were working with the group Umutuzo in the western province and then we work with a a group in the Northern province where um, tea is typically grown. So I was looking at, you know, my first love is coffee. I would say, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) I was looking at coffee. I was looking at beautiful fabrics and bags and baskets Mm -hmm. and, you know, different products that artisans there make and just would bring back lots of this stuff and jewelry And these amazing essential oils, like lemongrass oil, and just bringing these things back for gifts and gifts. And then I got to the point where it was a couple things. I had given some of the teas to a friend here who owns this tea house, and it's quite incredible. It's called Dobra Tea House. They have many locations here and throughout the country. Mm -hmm. And then they started in Czechoslovakia. And their, their standards of tea quality are so high. Mm -hmm. And he affirmed to me that this was some of the best tea they'd ever tasted and had not really been too familiar with Rwandan tea either. Many people aren't, they're surprised Mm -hmm. they haven't heard of Rwandan tea. Mm -hmm. So that was one thing. And then just as I started, you know, looking at the amount of time and effort I was putting into raising money for the nonprofit, if we could come up with some products that we could actually sell and really make an economic impact that way. And as yeah. you said, like potentially create more jobs in Rwanda yeah. and here in the US, then it felt like it might be more sustainable. Not to take away, you know, from building a nonprofit, we st- we're still doing that. It still serves a really important purpose. Yeah. But I also was just seeing where the trends were going in the US and mm-hmm. more people are turning to premium loose leaf teas now than they were before. And I think there's this tipping point that's about to happen. Like the third wave of coffee happened. I think it was Mm -hmm. the mid nineties where the specialty coffee demand started growing and people started really thinking twice about buying ground Mm -hmm. coffee in a can Yeah, (laughs) and actually started exploring, like maybe buying their own coffee, like grinding it at home. And We're seeing that's becoming very popular with loose leaf tea and Mm. making these amazing infusions. And it's good for your body and your soul and your Mm. health. And like on the producer side, it is something that's grown year round. I've yet to meet a coffee, a group of coffee farmers that have managed to move out of poverty Mm. from growing only coffee. Mm. I mean, the, the, the women we work with in the Western province, they're still growing some, some small amounts of coffee, but they only are able to harvest once or twice a year. So that's a lot of pressure. Like Mm. if the harvest doesn't go well, if the weather's not good, then they don't get paid that year.
1: That's so so interesting. So tea is grown year round this Rwandan
0: tea. mm -hmm.
2: Wow. Yeah. Wow, yeah, we rotate, so we rotate the bushes every three weeks. Mm-hmm. So we could pluck tea every every day if we wanted wow. to. Yeah, the elevation is perfect. It's cool at night and warm during the day. Mm-hmm. And then the the botanical farm, we can grow herbs year round as well. But we do mm-hmm. rotate the crops, we use regenerative farming practices and there's a rainy season and a and a dry season and we've installed a water irrigation system and wells now so they have mm. water year round mm. and they also grow food in some of the farm and like during the pandemic we it was such a emergency situation we actually converted the entire farm to food crops mm. so at wow. least they would have what they needed for their families wow
1: that's awesome So I personally have tried your black tea and it is so delicious. The aroma and also the richness of the flavor. You could just tell that it's quality. Sorry to interrupt, but we got to tell you this. Did you know that Fairtrade LA led the campaign that officially designated Los Angeles the largest fair trade city in North America and the fourth largest in the world? We are a nonprofit that exists because of the support from people like you. Become a Fairtrade LA monthly donor to ensure this educational content reaches as many people as possible. Go to Fairtrade LA slash donate to pledge your support. Thanks for letting me interrupt. Let's get back to the episode. And something that I love is that you use loose sleeves, you sell loose sleeves. And as someone who's Chinese, I grew up with loose sleeves, so I didn't even think twice about it. I knew exactly what to do, how to like, you know put it in my cup and brew it. So I'm curious, why did you choose Loose Leaf? It's also the more um, environmentally friendly way of drinking tea as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I grew up drinking tea in a bag mostly. I think my, my aunt introduced me to red rose tea. And the reason I loved it was because it was like half tea and half sugar and lots of milk. And mm-hmm. and my favorite part is there was a little China animal that came in the box. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I have like very fond memories of that. And my mom always had tea bags in the house, mostly herbal. But, you know, I felt like I discovered tea when I lived in Rwanda and it mm-hmm. was loose leaf. And then as I started digging into like, also, you know, spending time at Dober Tea House here in Asheville, mm-hmm. and they really taught me A lot about the importance of drinking only loose leaf tea. Mm. So I started asking those same questions, like, why, you know, isn't it? And I had all the myths, like, it must be messy, it must take more time, be so complicated, blah, blah, blah. It's not any of those things. And once I discovered, like, what actually is in the tea bags, most Mm. tea bags, I can't even drink tea in a bag anymore because I feel like I'm drinking poison. Because there's microplastics, even if it's not in the bag, there's usually a glue that holds the string to the bag. Yeah. And that usually leaches out in very hot I water. I didn't even
1: think about that part. Oh,
2: you're drinking plastic. It was actually a mistake. I mean, lots of companies are trying to do it differently. Mm-hmm. People think even unbleached tea bags must be better, but it's not. It might be better, but it's still not something I want to drink mm-hmm. when you're drinking essentially paper and plastic. So, or there's like corn based products now, but I don't want to drink corn either. So I just haven't found a tea bag that I want to drink. And, you know, your point about environmental, I think the, the more we can just do less packaging, the better. Yeah. Because in my business, consumer packaged goods, the packaging part is the, that's the toughest bucket for me, you know, yes. so we're trying to do the right thing with recyclable aluminum, BPA free, Mm -hmm. you know, we're trying to select down to like the inks we stamp our boxes Mm -hmm. with and zero waste shipping methods, but we use freight, we use freight for everything. That's, it's damaging, you know, so it's, we got to pick our battles and try Mm -hmm. to like do the best we can with what we know and what we have. And then look at, you know, the positive impact and what we can do to try to like minimize the yeah. Minimize. I don't believe there's sustainable packaging. Mm, yeah, <laughs> it's it's what's
1: better and what's worse. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah but so. we have to where the the loose leaf's tough. It's if there's anyone listening is thinking about starting a loose leaf tea company, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> mm, yeah, <laughs> I mean, and maybe you can. Maybe there's a way, but it's tough. It's still very young in this country. There's not a huge percentage of the population that are going to drink loose leaf every day. The people who do drink loose leaf probably drink it exclusively Mm -hmm. because once you go loose, it's hard to go back. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I want to encourage our listeners to just spend a little bit of time (laughs) learning how to brew it because it truly makes a huge difference. Like I just make sure at home I have some steepers. And I just fill that up with loose leaf, put it in my cup, pour some hot water. Obviously there's different ways you could do it, even with a teapot, but if you just learn a little bit of how to use it, it will change your tea game. Like the flavor you get from loose leaf is just so much more rich, so different.
2: And the quality, yeah, the quality of the leaf. I mean, you're seeing these bigger sachets that are holding like bigger leaf teas now, but Yeah, I like there's just a mesh thing you can drop in your mesh. It might be metal, it might be bamboo, just drop it in your cup. It's the most simple thing ever. I don't even use, I don't mess with the tea balls. I don't, unless it's like ceremonial, I'm probably not going to mess with a pot or a scale or a thermometer. Yeah, no, like that stuff is a little too much for my everyday busy lifestyle. But when I'm traveling, you could just drop the tea in a canister mm-hmm. and grab your little steep basket. And in a pinch, like if you forget your tea basket, I've even gone to like a kit, like a, you can even use like a little mesh strainer, mm-hmm. you know, that yes. you might have for yes. cooking or with your juicer yeah. or something. It's so easy. It's and so it's simple. So- and you save the leaves. you got like three cups. You just yes. keep pouring over.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> We're going to convince our listeners value. to do
2: this. Yes. If you, oh, and I know everyone's like talking about inflation. If you calculate <laughs> the price of your serving of loose leaf tea, like yes. let's say you go to your local co-op or any store that has the bulk bins, yes. you know, get it, try to get it there. Yeah. And then if you calculate, it comes out to like, even the best tea, it might be like, you know, less than a dollar, maybe 30 cents, even Mm -hmm. for a serving. And if you calculate what you're paying in the box of tea and all the paper and string and plastic that's in that box, yeah, you won't go back.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Such an easy swap.
2: Now, as someone who... But I mean, that would you know, it was challenging. I would say like, I'm still I get really excited about like fine cold drinks too. And that's kind of how I I don't know if you're going to get into that. I don't want to jump ahead, but it did evolve into my other product line.
1: Yeah. Tell us more. So you started with the loose leaves and then you developed the cold drinks, the canned Mm -hmm. cold drinks. So tell us about that.
2: Right. So we have four, we actually have five types of loose leaves. So we have the four cumulus sinensis, which are all grown in the Northern province of Rwanda at a fair trade certified tea garden, which you Mm -hmm. can visit. They have a guest house there, which is very unusual for tea gardens. They're often closed to the public. It's often hard to get in. So we do an annual crop to cup trip. We're actually going on January 1st, this, this Mm. coming in 2023 in just, Mm. you know, five months. So I'm excited to get back there. Um, But we have the green, black, silver needles and white tip teas that come Mm. from that garden. And then we have an herbal blend of Tulsi and lemongrass that come from the Ubuzima farm. Mm. And those are sold in in recyclable canisters and also by the pound. And then we sell in bulk quantities to other tea companies. Mm. And so I started playing around with those ingredients at home just to make cold. You know, I started with a cold steep. I I used the silver needle as a cold steep. This is before I knew about cost of goods. And I'm like, Oh, (laughs) I could use our premium silver needle in a ready to drink that I sell in stores, but it's, it's a pricey tea, but it's so good. I mean, you can make this at home and just with any tea, really, Mm. you just put the loose leaves in a big Mason jar, filtered Mm -hmm. water, put it in the fridge. And depending on how strong you like it, it might take three hours, it might take five hours. And then you Mm -hmm. simply strain the tea leaves out and you've got a big jar of cold, delicious tea. Wow.
1: That that is so simple. On
2: on like a hot summer day. It's so good. Yeah, That's how I got started. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And now you sell these canned drinks, right? In stores.
2: And now I saw these canned drinks because I was like, okay, I love the cold steep method, how can we make it even more fun? Like, how could it be like a party drink and have that mm-hmm. same mouthfeel as maybe uh, soda or alcohol and, mm-hmm. and feel kind of like a celebration. Like if I'm mm-hmm. socializing, you know, cause I don't, yeah. when I go out, I don't drink alcohol anymore, but mm-hmm. I like that sparkling kind of effervescence feel in my mouth. Yeah, And so I decided to start playing around with nitro and CO2 and different gases. And I learned mm-hmm. how to keg, um, so, I started kegging the teas wow. and then testing them out at local breweries to have on tap. Wow. So, my first recipe I made to look like a beer. So, it had the same golden hue, same color, same like head on top when it came uh-huh. off top.
3: Uh-huh.
2: And it, I, I had no idea what would happen, but it sold like hotcakes. People loved it. It became the staff favorite. Wow. And so, I'm like, okay. And people would be like, has anyone ever done this, like carbonated tea? I don't think so. I mean, this was a few years ago. Now yeah. there are a few on the market, and I'm sure people have probably at home. So I decided to really focus on that because you know it's it's a product that sells really quickly, it has smaller margins and a, a lower price point, but we can sell a lot of cold canned beverages, and there's yeah. a lot of channel opportunities. Yeah, because you know, online, in stores, in restaurants, cafe—I mean, yeah, everywhere where there's a, a cooler, we can sell the drinks.
1: Yeah, and I mean, iced tea, and just tea is a staple for a lot of people. And I love your packaging, by the way. It is so fun. It is like a party, <laughs> party in a can. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Thank you. So yeah, it each has like a different This yeah, It's um, so have- fun. Colors here. Oh, that's yeah. so fun. Yeah, we have two new flavors actually that just were produced this week. So, we're going to Natural Products Expo East in Philadelphia mm-hmm. in a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. and we'll be unveiling the two new flavors there. And those are both decaf. Ooh. So, caffeine free, unsweetened, just using botanicals grown on our farm. And also in South Africa, we're starting to partner with some cooperatives there that are growing rhabas and honeybush. Mm. And we have a fair trade certified vanilla ingredient we're now using. Ooh. So I'm kind of like getting into a new area of yeah. sourcing vanilla which is very interesting. It's completely different than tea.
1: <laughs> oh wow, I'm excited. So much yeah. so much creativity is going to happen from this.
2: Yeah, it's fun.
1: It's so fun. you are one of the companies that deal with exclusively with consumer goods which is tough it's not easy area to to focus on so you probably have just had to spend a lot of time working on your packaging but also labels so Cirilla mm-hmm. has the organic label the fair trade label and the women owned label So can you unpack this for us? And we'll focus on the consumer side for now. And then the next we'll dive into the business side, but as for consumers Mm -hmm. these days it is a bit overwhelming to try to do the right thing and to find the right labels. There's a lot of logos to look out for. So how do we, what do we even look for? How should we go about it?
2: Yeah, that's such a good question. And my heart goes out to consumers these days who want to do the right thing and be healthy. It's gotta Mm. be challenging. We also just added kosher this month, kosher Mm. certification. And we also have, we created, it's not a certification, but an emblem on top, which says tea grown in Rwanda Mm. with a small gorilla, which is the icon of strength and resilience in Rwanda.
3: Mm. So that
2: was a nod to like, remember I said, back in the beginning of our conversation, I, I really think it's important to, to shine a light on the the origins of the ingredients. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be sure we had Rwanda actually on the packaging, mm-hmm. even if it's blended with other ingredients. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, part of it is a business, you know, part of it is business. You have to look at, um, from the point of a consumer, I mean, there's different types of consumers. It, we know that our consumers don't want to consume they don't want to drink pesticides same reason i don't mm-hmm. want to drink plastic in my tea um trying to get away from those chemical ingredients so there's a lot of things you could say on the label but if you make a claim i know this legally as well like the claim needs to be backed up by a third party mm-hmm. organization and so for me as a consumer if i take my business hat off like there's so many products in the store today, we're busy. I think we make a decision in less than three seconds. Yeah. And so we scan, like, especially if it's a new product, we're gonna scan with something that looks familiar and safe. Mm-hmm. And to me, if I see organic fair trade non-GML, me personally, like those help me feel much safer with what mm-hmm. I'm buying. It helps me know I'm hopefully not gonna be like drinking chemicals and pesticides because I work really hard on, you know, other areas of my life every day, I need to feel Mm -hmm. supported and nurtured, and energized and be able to sleep at night. But also, I I need to know that like the people involved in producing this product were treated fairly and have opportunities as well. So that's why I, you know, but it's, we have to also understand that not all products can even be certified, fair trade. So that's a little tricky. because there's only certain products that it's really important that they do have the fair trade certification on them. But if I'm buying like local, you know, lettuce, it's not, um, that's not something Mm -hmm. I'm going to look for. Yeah. (laughs) so that's a little tricky. I think it's, it's important to, if a company is claiming like direct trade or all natural or things like that, that's great, but that is, and I might still buy it and, and support that brand, but I'm going to take a little more time to find out what they mean by that. Yeah. So the great thing about a certification is I know what it means. I know that they've been checked out, you know, and there's some pretty rigorous, you know, things that you have to go through to get that certification, Mm
3: -hmm. but there's
2: others. I mean, I know a lot of our consumers care about like There's, there's other ones like certified gluten-free, if you've got an allergen, Mm -hmm. vegan and whole 30 different dietary things. And I mean, we added kosher recently because we know that's really important to some of our consumers. We're entering some new regions and markets where it's very important. And it also sets us apart from some of the other beverages that aren't kosher. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, labels are so important. It helps consumers know that they can trust the brand. You know, they, they know what they're getting. And I think that is so important and shout out to you and Cirilla, this brand for, for grabbing, like for pursuing all these labels, because I know it's an intensive process. It is not easy. It is not cheap. So now switching gears to the business side, what kind of insight can you offer to fellow small business owners regarding labels? Like they may mm-hmm. have limited resources, not sure what is worth investing their time and energy into. Like how do we navigate that? And have you seen an increase in awareness by consumers to make this worthwhile?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think surveys always help too. We have a college advisory council now that, I recently ran some things by them, like, cause we were, we we're actually making a shelf talker. It's like a little sign that goes on the shop nicer or products. It's very mm-hmm. small though. And then also a cling sticker that would go on a, a cooler of a door, like at a college mm-hmm. on a college campus. Yeah. And there's simply not, not enough room to put that much on. So I asked like, out of all these things, what are the most important to you? If we could only mm-hmm. include like two or three. And these were female college students. They said the woman-owned part, mm-hmm. the organic part, and the alcohol-free part.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think fair trade was probably right behind that. And so, I think that's important to know, like who's your audience mm-hmm. and what do they care most about. Because I used to have a very messy label. <laughs> mm-hmm. We we try to put it all on, and. We try to put a lot on the front of the label. And I think it's just, we have to keep a streamlined, elegant look while also letting folks know what's inside and those different certifications we have. So yes, surveys, focus groups are helpful. And then I think really it comes down to like getting to the root of who you are and your, your values as a founder, as a business, what's your culture. And for me, it, it became super important that we had the woman-owned certification because it sounds sort of sort of silly. Like, why do we need to get certified to be woman-owned? We're woman-owned, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. But it's it was a very rigorous application. It took us probably close to a year to finish everything wow. and actually get the approval. But people are looking for that. I think for someone, you know, we have black-owned business certifications now, minority-owned business. I think those are all really important, Mm -hmm. not only for your consumer to see that, but to also give you access to different program incentives. So for Mm -hmm. me, doing business with grocery stores can be very expensive, as an example. Mm -hmm. And some of them offer discounted slotting Mm -hmm. fees, if you have those minority owned or women owned certifications, so it can mm-hmm. actually help lower the prices on some things, mm-hmm. because they're really wanting to make sure, you know, more than 3% of their vendors have diverse backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So that's an example. And then I think you just have to decide for yourself and like who you're serving and what's important to them. And then, and then mm-hmm. kind of marry that with what's important to you. Yeah. And then at some point, I think it's like, okay, enough. Like we could keep going with all these things. It's never ending what we could add, but let's just get back to business and get back to like doing what we're, you know, what we set out to do, which is to make a difference in the world. And then hopefully we'll drop people into our website and our social media pages where we can tell a bigger picture, a a bigger story.
3: Yeah.
2: You know, where the certifications is just a foundation. Yeah. To maybe catch someone's eye, help, like you said, help them trust you. And mm-hmm. then, and then you get to tell the story.
1: Yeah. And we always encourage consumers to do their part, do their research as well. All right. So yes. now looking at the big picture, what do you hope to see in the future with Cirilla and the farmers and
2: communities that you work with? What is the ideal future? Mm. Well, I guess thinking about our work in Rwanda, my ideal would be to get to the point where the demand for our beverages is so great in the US that number one, it helps our partners in Rwanda to expand what they're doing because they have a lot of room to expand. There's a lot of land they could grow on that they're not using. There's a lot of people that need jobs that we could support if we had that demand. And so to continue to grow in that way, we're also pursuing regenerative agriculture certification on our farm there, Mm -hmm. which is very important to us because that's a way that we can start to hopefully heal the planet and the earth.
3: Mm -hmm. And
2: that's going to take some some more time and skill sets. And then you know, with that expansion there and the greater contribution to the economy, like that just has a great ripple effect into educational opportunities for the children, greater access to healthcare. And also one of my favorite things is building a a seed fund so that people who do have business ideas and want to start their own projects can access that seed funding to get started. So that's my dream for there. And then, you know, in terms of how big do we want to grow our brand here in the U.S., I think the sky's the limit. I mean, I really believe Mm -hmm. in going back to that, like what's best for the greatest good. Every day I try to check in with spirit and the universe and like, how can I be of service today? Mm -hmm. And I see this beverage brand as more of a product with purpose that we can Mm. help inspire people anywhere to tap into their their gifts and their Mm. purpose and it doesn't have to mean getting sober that's what it meant for me Mm. I had to get sober in order to listen to Mm. that guidance Mm. but I want to be there for someone to support their healing journey just like the women in Rwanda were there Mm. to support mine
1: yeah, this is why I love meeting with people in the fair trade community. There's always a greater purpose. You know, you're trying to make a greater difference in the world. I love that. Now, ending with a fun question: What is your favorite product <laughs> from Cirilla? <laughs> it's like picking your favorite child. So I know it's hard, but oh, what from is your Cirilla.
2: favorite? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, what's my favorite? today I know I sometimes I see them as like I grew up with horses so I see Mm. them like running the race it's like which one which one like this week I would say we did a reformulation on our ginger white tea Mm. and it's like amazing but I did a lot of events this week and people were going crazy over that one but let me tell you my all-time favorite is our Tulsi lemongrass Lewis Leaf Blend Mm. because it was grown with so much love, and I know all of the women who Mm. grew this, and it's just like you can taste the nurturing, Mm. and it's got like this subtle sweetness, and the tulsi is such a miracle herb. It's like Mm. it supports the adrenals. It's an adaptogen. Mm. At the end of the day. Cause I'm just like going, going, going mm. all day. And yeah. at the end of the day, especially when the weather's cool, I love to end my day with that. It just feels mm. like a great way to kind of restore and get ready for hopefully a good night's sleep. And I, I just have such a personal connection to the people who produced it. And that's why I love it. Yeah.
1: We're definitely going to add that to our show notes. I, I want some now. <laughs> So we we want our listeners to walk away from every conversation with a simple action step. What do you want to encourage our listeners to do to help make this world a better and a more fair
2: place for all? Mm, I would say since we are talking about fair trade products, because I could go down a lot of roads with Mm -hmm. this answer, but I would say to try one new brand this week maybe, and to unpack what that brand is doing behind the scenes. And if it speaks to your heart and you feel good about what they're doing to share it, whether it's on social media or just with a friend or sitting, you know, with someone in person, it means the world. Like the ripple effect of that is huge. It could trickle all the way down to the farmer or the artisan who, you know, planted the seeds or, you know, if it's stitched, you know, mm-hmm. the fabric, there's mm-hmm. such a ripple effect. And we get into habits where we just like buy the same thing all the yeah. time and just try something new. Yeah, And if you don't like it, there's nothing to lose.
1: Yeah. That is such a great next simple step because one, it's super fun. It's fun to just explore new brands. But too, as you could hear from this conversation, the ripple effect to the producers is huge. It's beyond, I believe it's beyond our understanding. So thank you for that. And thank you so much. This was such a good conversation. I can't wait to
3: share it with the world. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Thank Thank you so much for what you're doing and being the vessel for all these stories. I appreciate you.
0: Sarah is giving you, our listeners, a 15% off their entire site at drinksyrilla.com. Just use promo code FAIRTALKS15, that's F-A-I-R-T-A-L-K-S-1-5 at checkout. As always, you can find these details in our show notes at fairtradela.org slash podcast. Hope you enjoy these delicious beverages made from Rwandan tea. And maybe after this conversation, you'll even give the loose leaves a try.
1: I want to thank the creative team behind the Fair Talks podcast. Our executive producer, Juliette Bucurel, our editor, Kaden
0: Sullivan, our marketing team, Jasmine French, Elena Alcero, and Lizzie Case. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fair Talks podcast. Thank you for being a part of our community and sharing the Fair Trade message. Thank you again to our sponsor Fairtrade USA for making this possible. Now, are you ready to create change? The next time you're out shopping, just pick up one Fairtrade item to buy like coffee, chocolate, or bananas and make a difference. Ask your office, church, business, school, or your family to shop more fair. If you have any questions or want to learn more, head over to fairtradela.org podcast for show notes, discount codes, and additional resources. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And follow us on social media at FairtradeLA to join our amazing community of fair trade lovers. Tune in to our next Fair Talks conversation to hear more life-changing stories. Thanks for listening.